Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome back to another episode of the Career Contessa podcast, your shortcut to being more fulfilled, healthy, and successful at work. I'm your host, Laura McGinwin. And if you've ever felt burned out and then tried to quote unquote fix it by upping your self-care routine, this episode is for you. Because you probably noticed that in between all your self-care efforts, the burnout from work wasn't exactly going away. Today, we're joined by Dr. Justin Henderson, a psychologist and educator who shares exactly why self-care isn't the solution for a burned out workforce. That's because three decades of research have demonstrated that work environments, not individual workers, have the greatest impact on the possibility of burnout and worker turnover. So what is the solution to burnout? Dr. Justin is sharing all of this with actionable steps and tips to help us all feel better. And now this is the Career Contessa podcast. Hi, Dr. Justin. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lauren. So let's start with a brief intro into who you are, your work around burnout, and why you're passionate about this topic. Sure. So I'm Dr. Justin Henderson, and I'm an assistant professor in counseling. I'm also a licensed psychologist. And for me, I've been really interested in burnout probably since graduate school, because when you're training to be a mental health provider, burnout is part of our education to be aware of that, to be effective. Long-term means that we need to be mindful of the possibility of burnout. And then I became increasingly interested in burnout as a healthcare administrator, taking care of my team and making sure that they, you know, were properly taken care of and that they were taking care of themselves and that we were being an effective team. And knowing firsthand that burnout can really disrupt our capacity to professionally engage in helping patients and clients with their well-being. And it's a bit ironic when you're trying to help other people with their health and you're suffering um, yourself because of aspects of the job. So I became pretty interested in that, I think, over time, just experiencing burnout myself and and others and, and what can we do to help alleviate that. Yeah. And I'm sure during COVID, as you pointed out, it was probably a weird experience to 
be experiencing burnout. You're trying to help people who are experiencing burnout and the world is sort of crumbling around us with a lot of uncertainty. And yet you are the people we're all turning to as mental health professionals to help us figure it out, right? Yeah, absolutely. We are in a current context where the boundary line between what you're experiencing, what I'm experiencing is much thinner, right? Because we are collectively experiencing the same thing, perhaps in a different way, but that is a challenging context. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of people felt that way. And on behalf of everyone, thank you to the mental health professionals who hung out with all of us during that time and continue to. Let's have you start by sharing your definition of burnout and the characteristics or I guess also kind of the behaviors that are often associated with burnout. Cause I want to make sure we're all kind of starting on this even playing field of knowledge with burnout. Yeah. I think that it's really important to have a kind of common understanding of burnout. My definition is probably, it's not strictly mine. It's one that I borrowed quite frankly. And I commonly refer to burnout as a state of distressing emotions, stress, physical exhaustion, cynicism, which we'll talk about here in a minute, psychological overwhelm, and generally a decline in professional efficacy in the presence of workplace stressors. And, you know, recently, and recently being about 2019, the International Classification of Diseases, which is kind of the big international classification of all medical diagnoses, they recognized burnout as an occupational phenomenon. Uh, noting that it's a syndrome that, you know, results from workplace stress. And so those are kind of the two, you know, longer definition, more simplified definitions that I tend to work with. And, and what about, you mentioned there's three critical dimensions of burnout. Can you talk about what those are? Yeah. So this is from the work of Christina Maslach, who's a prominent researcher in the field of burnout and really is one of the prominent people why we have a lot of a, a research and awareness about burnout in organizations. And she noted from her research that burnout tended to have three dimensions to it. And the first is exhaustion. And I think a lot of times that's the first cue for people that they may be experiencing burnout is they just feel worn out. As you mentioned, the pandemic particularly made this more uh, prevalent for people and more salient, loss of energy, depletion, you know, fatigue, those kind of things. It's important to note that exhaustion by itself is not burnout because there's actually a phenomenon that we call eustress, EU stress, which basically kind of notes that kind of feeling of exhaustion that comes from a worthwhile project. So many of us have experienced maybe work-related things where we're tired or fatigued, but it's kind of that good fatigue, like it was worthwhile energy expenditure. But this is different. This is an exhaustion that feels like you've expended yourself and you don't quite feel like there's a return on investment, if that makes sense. And over time, this can lead to the second dimension, which is cynicism. And this is where we start to develop a negative attitude towards our workplace, maybe a negative attitude towards our clients or customers. Folks that generally don't experience a lot of irritability or anger might find themselves more irritable and angry at work and in a withdrawal from professional obligations or feeling like you need, you know, some distance from work. And these two things, exhaustion and cynicism can then lead to the last dimension, which is inefficiencies. So this is where you start to see that your productivity is going down. There's a lower kind of overall morale. And really we're starting to see an inability to cope with the stressors of our job. Do you think most people, and I would 
I'm going to assume, yes, don't know how to cope with the stressors of the job. It's like you get to this place, but then you also don't know how to cope, but you also didn't know how to cope with it when you were in dimension one or two or three. Yeah, it certainly can be that experience of kind of falling down the hill where, yeah. you know, the, the initial exhaustion feeling worn out just kind of naturally leads to the next kind of dimension of, of eventual burnout because we didn't really cope with it to begin with. And in addition to that, and what my article that you read was kind of alludes to is that workplaces are also very poor at helping people learn how to cope with burnout and supporting addressing burnout and preventing it. So in a lot of ways, that hill metaphor makes sense because the environment is sloped in such a way for individual workers that once this starts to kind of unfold, it's a quick (laughs) track down to burnout. Hi there, it's Aaliyah. I'm hopping in real quick to talk about one of our wonderful sponsors, Chime. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? Is it checking your credit score? Didn't think so. But you know who does do that? Chime. With their secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card, you can start to build credit with your own money. Credit scores are really important, and I'm sure you all are aware of this if you've ever dealt with any rental or loans. And if you have a low credit score, you can sometimes feel a bit helpless. Improving your credit score can feel like a bit of an enigma too. Well, here's how Chime can help you. Chime reports your payments to credit bureaus to help you build credit over time. Their members see an increase of 30 points on average. That's huge. All of this with no annual fees, large security deposits, or credit checks to apply. So start your credit journey with Chime. Sign up only takes two minutes and doesn't affect your credit score. Get started at chime.com slash Contessa. That's chime.com slash Contessa. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Stride Bank NA pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Chime Checking Account, and $200 qualifying direct deposit required to apply for the secured Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. Regular on-time payment history can have a positive impact on your credit score. Impact to score may vary, and some users' scores may not improve. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply except at MoneyPass ATMs in a 7-Eleven or any AllPoint or Visa Plus Alliance ATM. All right, let's get back to the show. Have you ever messaged a friend about a manager who just won't stop texting you after hours? Or a coworker who keeps posting weirdly suggestive Austin Powers gifts in Slack? Well, you are not alone. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, and on my new podcast, Work Appropriate, I set out to find solutions to these oddly specific, yet somehow completely universal listener questions. Whether you work in an office chair or a sixth grade classroom, my guests and I are here to help. Listen to Work Appropriate every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things I loved about your article is you mentioned that there's three decades of research that have demonstrated that work environments, not the individual worker, that has the greatest impact on the possibility of burnout and worker turnover. So what I loved about that just is like sometimes I think with burnout and oftentimes the message is you're told to change yourself. You know, if you, you know, you cause this, it's all about us, the individual worker, but really the research is that work environments are a bigger piece of this. So if work environment factors are a major reason why people experience burnout, then why aren't we seeing more work-related interventions? Like, why do you think that 
there isn't more of a language and a focus on work environments? Yeah, and that's a really important question because I think the answer is probably complicated. In fact, I know it's complicated. And expensive and time-consuming, probably a lot of people (laughs) involved in it. So we can kind of start with kind of the the larger cultural context and work ourselves into organizational answers. So at the larger level, we are, at least in the United States, we're a very individualistic culture. And so we have a tendency already to be biased towards seeing that problems originate within individual people and really not be much aware of how social and organizational contexts actually influence behavior. So I think that's kind of operating in the background of all of this. But as you said, I think at the organizational level, they too can fall prey to this bias, this implicit bias that we may have that overemphasizes individuals in a work environment. But also, it's incredibly costly to really address this. And in fact, I wouldn't say it's incredibly costly monetarily wise, but relationally, it's costly. You have to invest in knowing your work group to understand the people that are part of your organization. And this is increasingly challenging in a very transient work environment that lends itself to be very dehumanizing over time. And so for me, I feel like, you know, one of the major reasons why we don't address this is a, it's not positioned as a a community or organizational problem. Even a lot of the self-help resources really emphasize once again, that this is just your responsibility But B, that work environments also have not demonstrated to most workers that they're going to be responsible for paying attention to and preventing burnout in their environments. So I think both of those together kind of leads to this feeling like burnout's your problem, which then leads to burnout stigma, this belief that, oh, if I'm experiencing burnout, I must have done something wrong. I'm not strong enough, not resilient enough. And then you have employers going, oh, let's do worker resiliency programs, (laughs) which has a positive motivation, but does kind of infer from that, that yes, this actually was your problem. Let's, let's make you stronger next time. Yeah. If, if we could just make you stronger and fix you, then the work environment will naturally fix itself. I also wonder sometimes for organizations, if like just the idea of creating a healthier work environment or fixing your work environment just seems so big and like it's such a gray zone. And like most organizations love data-driven decisions. They love the black and white. They love the results. And so all the people stuff, the middle stuff, they're like, this seems messy and complicated. And how will we ever know if it's working? And I, I find that way oftentimes to your point about putting resources behind things like this, it's like they want some direct ROI and some of this stuff is a little harder to, to measure. Right. I guess it's kind of that double-edged sword. So can you talk about some specific work environment factors that will lead to burnout? I mean, based on the research, just in case people are wondering like, hey, do I work in this work environment? What are some things that maybe they should be looking out for? Yeah, sure. There's some common ones. Probably the one that we've seen most prominent during the pandemic is excessive workloads. We saw this emerging before the pandemic where average American workers and, and, and in other countries as well have noted that they're, you know, they're being asked to do more with less. But in fact, that almost seems like the mantra of the modern worker yeah. <laughs> in a modern organization, right? It's I have to do more with less. 
And so we know that excessive workloads are a strong contributor towards burnout because people feel as though they're not being as effective. When you have more work to do, that, that brings about more stress. But generally speaking, the research also demonstrates that we become much less effective at a certain point in hours of work per week. Particularly, research has shown that if you're working over 50 hours a week, you're probably less efficient of a worker than someone who's working less. And we, we've even seen this with countries that work far less than even Americans have actually shown that have much more efficient and productive modes of employment. And so excessive workloads doesn't necessarily lead to better outcomes from that numeric perspective, as you were saying, but also workers themselves can feel the strain of that and for very little reward. The other kind of major contributor is what's kind of in the literature noted as worker autonomy. And this is something that within work environments, we have to get creative about because certain jobs, there may be less autonomy at face value, but where you can give workers the flexibility in their schedule or discretion And what I think about this is that this is a reflection of trust that organizations have with the people who work for them. And a lack of trust is generally represented in a lot of micromanaging. And so trust is critical for community care. And without that trust in the working environment, the person feels as though that they, their individual preferences or their ways of being able to make decisions are taken from them. And this is represented in our larger work environment. And the United States is one of the leading creators of the assembly line as our work environment. And that was all about stripping away individual discretion. And yes, it made people more efficient, but short-lived. People didn't want to work those jobs very long. And the problem is there's still this tendency, even in like tech and other environments, that they want to just make things more and more efficient. But that isn't really how human work works, if that makes sense. So I think those two, and then I would say the third major component here is destructive or toxic competition amongst coworkers. And so when you have these competing demands and low resources, and you have to do more with less, you start to see that the, sometimes the workers that are rewarded the most are, might be the least healthy in the system. Mm -hmm. They're the ones answering emails at late hours. They're the ones who have poor boundaries between their work life and their professional life. And then worst yet, if the organization rewards that person, it sends a message to the rest of the community that, hey, in order to do well in this environment and to be seen and given rewards means that you have to overextend yourself. And this promotes burnout as a status symbol. And in fact, in some environments, burnout is kind of seen as a goal to demonstrate that you're hustling, you're grinding. And think about these words that we're using about work, hustle, grind. These don't actually sound like the language of efficiency from my perspective. And so that exploitation is something that we have to be really mindful of. And when when an individual worker feels exploited, they're more likely to experience burnout. I'm just nodding my head at all of this because I remember working in a job. I was working in a recruiting job 
and I, we had a manager and we were all, it was tech recruiting, which is already very competitive because everyone wants a software developer, right? And she was going to basically invite us over to her house and who could ever source the most candidates was going to get some sort of monetary reward. I forget what it was exactly, but it was kind of one of those things where it's like, we've already worked an entire day. Now we're being invited to our manager's house to do more work and basically compete with each other. And like the level of toxicity and all the things you're saying is just incredible. And at the time being, you know, a 25, 26 year old, I, I agree. I was like, no, the, the goal here is you have to work nonstop 24 seven. Cause that's the only way you get ahead. And you know, if you learn these, I guess, or if you have these rules kind of set for you early on, it's really hard to break them too, because it, it becomes your kind of your way of work or your relationship with work. And I have to love when people are like, the solution to burnout is just self-care. You're like, no bubble bath is going to fix <laughs> that situation that, you know, is with you all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, the, the environment that you keep returning to is a powerful force in your life. And we spend so many of our waking hours at our jobs, that it absolutely can have a collective impact, good or bad. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly why you say self-care is not the solution for burnout. Instead, the solution for combating burnout is actually building compassion-centered workplaces. So tell us, how do we start with building a compassion-centered workplace? Yeah. And I thought about this, about what would be the solution, right? So if self-care isn't the solution, what is? And for me, it kind of came to this notion of a compassion-centered workplace. And compassion is both the sensitivity of suffering of people who are working in your work environment and a motivation to alleviate it. So right away, I'm emphasizing a relational quality to work that I think we really need to invigorate across the board. And so our work environments need to be sensitive to the experience of workers. And so with with that in mind, I have kind of generally like kind of three tips. I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to humanize our work. There is this kind of macro level work culture that if we're not careful, dehumanizes work. And there's a long history of this in the United States with obviously slave labor and indentured servitude. And while those overt forms of hostile work environments are gone, there's still this, this residue, if you will, of work environments trying to do more with less and trying to maximize their profits and sometimes putting profits over people. And so one of the things to kind of combat that is to humanize work, to not make efficiency our mission statement, but to place humans at the center of your mission statement. And so we have to actively resist a culture that dehumanizes workers, that promotes profit over people and treats workers as expendable units in a system. And so one of the strongest predictors to burnout is workers being overwhelmed with too many job demands, as we noted. And so to humanize our work acknowledges that there are human limitations and that overworking is a short-term solution that comes with a long-term cost. At least for me, one of the things I've even noted in mental health care is that when I see high turnover, that's a clear indication to me as a leader that something is amiss. There's something wrong here. I want to encourage an environment where people feel like they want to stay, feel motivated to stay. And and so humanizing our work can contribute towards that. 
The second tip would be to build resilient workplaces, not just resilient workers. A lot of human resource folks like this notion of resilient workers and training, and, and I love that, but I want them to shift a little bit wider in their vision and think about resilient workplaces. So uh, this is identifying the factors in the work environment that make the work community a healthy work environment and being very intentional about that. But in order to understand what a healthy work environment is, means that we have to get to know the people that are working there because it's not something that's just established ahead of time, but it's something co-constructed with workers. And so things like promoting professional discretionary responsibility, it's really empowering your workers to feel like, I trust you to make you know, wise decisions. We want to celebrate successful teams and not just successful workers. You know, if we have a toxic worker who overextends themselves, but actually kind of just makes everyone else upset, that over that kind of averages out really to be quite negative. We want to give workers the freedom where it matters, and we want to anticipate stressors from any changes that we might implement organizational-wide. And that just kind of promotes the idea that we're sensitive to our workers rather than just saying, oh, they need to just adapt. The last tip I would say would be to celebrate work-life separation. And this is another practice that kind of get, goes against the culture of American work life. Yeah. I think it's really important that we include physical and psychological detachment from work as part of the work culture. Too often do I see work environments celebrating this kind of diffused boundary between work and personal life. And in some ways, as I said before, actually rewards people for having poor boundaries. Instead, I would say a compassion-centered workplace encourages and celebrates separation, celebrates that you're taking that vacation. It's quite discouraging to see the statistics by which the amount of unused vacation is used or not used in this country in comparison to others. And there's even been research that's been done with some companies that have done away with limitations on vacation. There was this like fear that, oh, if we just open this up, people will never come back to work. And what they found was, no, on average, people really didn't take that much more vacation than if you had a cap. And that says something that you can trust your workers with separation. They will come back. But if we entangle them in this kind of compulsory relationship with work, they will burn out, they will leave, and they will not return. So we want to discourage blended boundaries with work, and we want to encourage healthy separation. I've even thought, and I know I run a small company, but I've even thought, because we have unlimited PTO, and to your point, like none of us take crazy advantage of it. I've even thought, I'm like, I should just start implementing like, this is our spring break. This is our summer break. This is our winter break to force people to have the time off. And we do have a winter break, but it's funny because the minute I started saying that, I I also didn't want to take away when do you want to have your time off, right? To your point about micromanaging or picking things for them. And so just constantly trying to celebrate you're going away. Enjoy. Don't check email. We got you covered. It's it's a lot of like, we got you. Don't worry. Don't worry. I, I like to also, sometimes I think it's important to remember, like most of us are not doing, or a lot of us have jobs where it's like, okay, if you don't respond to that email that day, what is the harm in getting back to them two days later? Right. And you talked about boundaries. And I also think a lot of this is from the top down. So we take our cues from our managers and our leaders. And it's really important that leaders who are listening to this 
think about, okay, what is the work environment? Maybe just on my team, maybe you don't have influence over your entire company, but just on your team, because, you know, I agree with you that turnover is a huge sign. And, and that's maybe also like a good interview question for people to ask or to start thinking about is like, ask the company, what is your turnover rate? They probably know what it is. If it's high, they're not going to advertise it. Right. <laughs> but, but they might answer you with it. I mean, I, I think that's really important when, I guess, can we talk about maybe like a success story? Like is once this stuff is implemented or when organizations are able to do this, what are the positives you see? I mean, obviously a decrease in burnout would be the ultimate goal, but do you see workers staying in jobs longer? Do you see just healthier work-life balance, mental, physical, like what are some of the positives that come from this too? Yeah, there is positives. And I think it's important to see that you know, very early on, even in the literature, there was a researcher, William Kahn, did some research on worker engagement. And what he found was that when workers feel as though they're, you know, subjectively engaged in work, they're going to find it meaningful. They're going to find it safe. And they feel like they're more available for work. And so for me, I feel like when, when we, as leaders, you know, part of this is to think about burnout prevention as a multi-level community-oriented responsibility so that the individual worker needs to be responsible for their own self-care and, and, how, and monitoring how they're doing, of course. But as you said, mid-level managers are really, you know, I think where a lot of this work can, can come into play. And then obviously those who are above are thinking also about community care. But generally speaking, when when these things are operating at its most optimal level, employees will find that their work is meaningful and they'll feel like they can bring their full selves to work because they can also take it. You know, they can they have breaks. They don't feel exploited. They don't feel dehumanized. They feel like they're part of a meaningful team. There's a trust in the organization there's transparency. You know, one of the things that we kind of note too is that, you know, we live in this information age. And so because of that, we think that the way I need to lead is to hold more information than my subordinates. But we found that actually during the pandemic, it was the exact opposite, that those leaders who are transparent about, hey, I don't know exactly how we're going to navigate the next turn. This is kind of what I'm thinking, but we're going to have to play it by ear. What do you think? Let's get some ideas did much better than leaders who held off waiting until they had everything perfected to, to you know, then send this perfected email out. It, it left employees generally feeling like they can't trust their work environment because there's no transparency. So that engagement is really an important outcome to these practices of burnout prevention. And that's generally the kind of language that really perks the ears of um, organizations because they, you know, having productive, engaged workers sounds like a positive thing. And it is, they are a more productive team. You'll spend less on hiring people. And generally speaking, you know, the investment is a long-term investment. So right away, you're not going to see necessarily these things happen as you noted earlier, right? So we have to build, and this is one of the things that's really hard for organizations and for our economy. Our everything is built on this like short term, and you can make everything look really good in the short term, even though in the long term it's it's degrading, right? Yeah. So in this way, we are actually building for the long term, noting that in the short term, trying to build a community orientation to care 
takes time, investment, and there's some ambiguities in the early phases of this. But in the long term, it, it demonstrates a higher level of engagement, lower turnover, and generally workers that report feeling more successful at their job. Well, I love that. And I want to end on a positive note because, you know, the burnout conversation can often feel a little negative and toxic work environments. We've all had one and, you know, it can feel like how do I, the only way to get out is to literally remove yourself. So I'm, I'm, I want to end on that positive note. Um, and for anybody who is listening to this, who has ever thought, Hey, it's all on me to fix burnout. Hopefully this has given them some encouragement that, well, the research actually shows that the work environment is playing the majority of that role. And, you know, while it's good to take the bubble bath and go for the afternoon walk, that isn't the cure. Also, maybe managing those expectations is a, is a piece of this as well. Well, Dr. Justin, where can people learn more about you or follow your work? I'm going to link to the Medium article that you wrote in the show notes as well. Yes, I, I write for Medium. That's kind of a primary outlet for the general public that I've been using can find me on Twitter at Dr. Justin, and I have professional website at Lucifer Clark College where I work if you're interested in some of the other work that I am involved in. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And you've really, I think, enlightened everybody on a very, you know, very personal and big topic in this country for sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It is an important topic and I'm glad you're getting the word out. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Career Contessa podcast. Please don't forget to rate and review our show wherever you are listening to us. If you want to learn more about Dr. Justin and read his articles on this topic, check out our show notes. Lastly, if you're curious if your workplace is indeed toxic, we created a workplace toxicity quiz. It's free and I'll link to it in the show notes. As Dr. Justin notes, understanding what parts of your work environment are toxic is a big first step in creating the solutions. And we hope this quiz can help. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.